Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is the journey to ESG integration, and it's for institutional and professional investors. I'm Jamie Kramer, Global Head of Strategic Product Management and ESG Lead for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And with me here today is Kay Herr, Portfolio Manager on the J.P. Morgan Global Select Equity Fund and Associate Director of Developed Markets Equity Research. Joining her is Lindsay Pals, Head of Continental Europe Institutional Clients. Welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. ESG. You would think that doing good for your clients would be a readily accepted principle and it would be very straightforward that all clients would want this. In fact, what I've learned as ESG lead over the last year is ESG can mean a variety of things to different clients. And in fact, it can be quite controversial. ESG continues to gain momentum with clients across regions and channels, Europe and Asia at the forefront. U.S. is picking up interest. With this as a backdrop, today we're going to talk about how ESG, from our perspective, can be good for your alpha and your clients. And we're going to hear from the head of Europe Institutional on what his clients are actually doing and what they want. So with that as a backdrop, Linzo, let's start with you. What do your clients want? I would say ESG has had a long runway in Europe. What originally started predominantly in the Nordic countries, we now see this region being surpassed by countries such as the Netherlands and France. The earliest client requests were around exclusion of companies in the portfolio, followed later by a more thorough engagement process. We now see this taking a next level by inclusion, where companies are ranked from best to worst offenders, and the bottom quartile needs further attestation on ESG. Asset managers are pushed by asset owners to engage with companies actively on the ESG factors. Low carbon emissions are an area which has become mandatory in France. Here, the managers have to show the level of output from the portfolio. In other countries, there's also client interest to make this more visible. So far, we have not seen a uniform approach on ESG as asset owners are defining bespoke solutions and may have different interpretations. Clients in the U.S. also have different interpretations. We've been moving from the concept of SRI, which is generally exclusionary, to more of incorporating ESG in a positive stance, so matching money with meaning. Um, And for institutional clients, it tends to be about risk management. Kay, you're responsible for leading equity research. Recently, you've done a phenomenal job incorporating ESG factors formally into the research process. Can you share with us how you were able to bring research analysts, portfolio managers along with you on the journey? Sure. Thanks, Jamie. But before I answer that, I think it's important to understand that one of the hallmarks of our investment approach is a long-term focus. So our analysts forecast and value companies not on the basis of this quarter's earnings, but on sustainable earnings. And if we're looking at several years out for our forecasts, implicitly, we are considering management quality, governance, and other typical factors that may be associated with ESG. So what we've done is to go from this type of implicit consideration to a more explicit or formalized approach. As I think you know, Jamie, we have ES&G specialists in London, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and in New York. And for many years, they've engaged with the research analysts, especially on voting and matters like this, 
But last year, we formalized our collaboration among the ESG specialists, the analysts, and the directors of research. We undertook a comprehensive review of our entire coverage universe across developed market equity research. We guided the research analysts to answer six specific questions that we thought got to the heart of the sustainability of cash flow and the redeployment of cash flow and our ability to access that cash flow. Okay, what was the reaction that the analysts had when you asked them to do more work? It's a good question. Some took it as a matter of course. They'd really been asking themselves those questions for many, many years. Others had never explicitly thought of these types of questions, and so they had to stop and think about how they would answer them specifically. It didn't change any of our investment decisions because, as I said, we'd been implicitly doing it, but it formalized it and it brought it into the investment discussions in our regular investment dialogue. So we've been doing this for decades and now we're formalizing this in our process. Linzo, if you think about your clients and how they've gone from a world of trust me to show me, can you discuss how they measure ESG and what they expect from their asset managers? Absolutely. I would say the earliest ways of measuring was mostly through proxy voting, where clients actually were requesting uh, to receive the reports. I used to say that we've taken some further steps there, and also, for instance, in France, actually, which is mandatory, but also there's interest in other countries as well, where the carbon footprint of the portfolio needs to be expressed. So that's one level as well. And also, if we look at the activities Rob Hardy and his team is currently doing on engagement reports, we see more and more clients actively asking for these type of sets of, uh, of data. Are they asking for this data in a standard way? I would say so far, given that the questions from our clients are different, it's more customized, but I'm expecting this in time to be more like a standard report. So some teams, we see standard reporting, but yeah, I'm expecting it to be more for all strategies. And how are your clients incorporating ESG into their formal policies? One example I can go into detail is also one of the clients we work with intensively on the continent is a client where I would say they've gone through a journey where the first step was exclusion of names, so where companies were just being taken off the list. Effectively, the stakeholders of the pension plan came back and said we would like to increase the E, S, and G within the portfolio. So they've come to a second step where they look at the overall universe of their portfolio. Then they take the 25% worst offenders of that portfolio. And then for the 25% worst offenders in that portfolio, they will ask the investment manager, which is us, to actively engage with these companies. So we're not excluding the companies, but actually, for instance, if you take the utility sector, then with the 25% bottom utilities, we have to engage in case we are going to buy them for this client's portfolio. Next to that, we also need to report on the engagement to the client as well. And Rob Hardy and team is working extensively to make that happen. Secondly, what I also would like to mention is that the client SESNG also becomes more into the press. We also have to report within 48 hours if any of these factors are in the press related to this company so that the underlying client, pension fund, can go directly to their stakeholders and explain why they have this portfolio positioning and also why they're not selling it or why they are selling it, actually. So you see that 
ESG is actually a very integral part of the investment process. It's an integral part of the reporting process. And without having this dialogue with the client, there is actually no reason for us to work together. Okay, so ESG is an integral part throughout the process. It sounds like many clients are very interested in how we engage with management. Kay, can you share with us from an equity perspective how we view engagement? Sure. I think the approach Linso described is a very interesting one. And I think he mentioned that they started with exclusion and now have moved on to engagement. We've never had an exclusionary approach to ESG. In fact, as I think about these questions that we've posed to our research analysts, we identify negative outliers, but we allow our teams to invest in whichever companies that they want. But we want this to be part of the dialogue. We want portfolio managers to understand that there may be risk to those future cash flows or our ability to access those cash flows based on ESG issues. Okay, how do portfolio managers and analysts access and share ESG information? First, over the last year, we've built an intranet site as an internal resource for ESG matters. It contains both the links to a third-party vendor we use, as well as our own negative outliers, and notable upgrades or downgrades and research notes from us. Additionally, on our intranet site, as I mentioned, it's got our own ESG outliers and the rationale for why we flagged them, the answers basically to those six questions that we referenced earlier. Also, on a daily basis, we distribute to all the portfolio managers portfolio reports that show our holdings, our portfolio positions, the benchmark weights, the valuation prices, our earnings forecasts. And since last year, this report also includes whether we flagged the company as an ESG outlier and allows us to look at the overall portfolio exposure. And then finally, when ESG specialists such as Rob Hardy and his counterparts in Tokyo, Hong Kong, and New York meet with companies, they're writing notes on an internal system that's viewed by all investors that summarize their engagement with companies. And then last, and I think you're aware, on a quarterly basis, our investment directors who represent the respective boards, whether it's the Luxembourg-based CCAV or the local mutual fund boards, our investment director reviews now include an ESG assessment of all portfolios. Wow, that sounds fully integrated throughout the entire process from research all the way through portfolio management and risk management. It sounds like you're turning data into an information advantage. That's right. And as I said, we're trying to incorporate ESG into the investment conversations. And Kay, if I may add to that, our clients, of course, very interested to know the added value of ESG also in relation to alpha, but also from a risk mitigation perspective. Does anything within your research show that there is an alpha or a risk added value towards that? It's an interesting question, Linso. There's been a lot of academic research on this topic. And with respect to developed market research, the data is quite inconclusive at best. For us, this is a relatively new focus in terms of how we formalize this approach. So we're focused on using ES&G matters as a risk mitigation tool. And that's why we're focused on identifying negative outliers. You're identifying negative outliers and trying to get the portfolio managers to ask questions. Isn't that just increasing risk-adjusted return over the long run? Yes, that's what we hope to gain, absolutely. Why do we supplement our own proprietary forward-looking research with third-party data? Sure. ESG is still a relatively new field, and as we've discussed, ESG mean different things to different clients, especially as we think, as Linso's just said, the difference between Europe and the U.S., 
So as I said, across developed market research, we've defined ESG in terms of whether it will affect the sustainability of our cash flow, the cash flow of the company, and our ability to access that cash flow. But I think it's important for us to understand, as Linso said, how do our clients look at it? And many of our clients use third-party vendors, such as MSCI, and therefore, we think it's important for us to understand what these vendors are saying about companies and whether we think these factors are material to us or not. And how do we describe to clients differences we might have versus the third-party provider? I think that's a great point, Jamie. The third-party vendors are typically going to have a rules-based approach, and therefore they're going to be very backward-looking. And specifically, when they look at environmental matters or social matters, they're often looking at, did a company have to pay fines? And we think that's more important to know about what has happened. We think it's more important to think about the future and is a company underinvesting in capital expenditures and therefore might be susceptible to future fines or risk? And we think the future is much more important for investments than what has happened historically. So third-party providers are an input into our information, but we use that to look at where risk outliers might be to have our portfolio managers raise questions on why we might own a security. But we can and often will differ than their opinions due to the fact that we are forward, long-term investors. I would say the more sophisticated clients actually use more than one data provider, so they work with an MSCI, Sustainalytics, and Ethics, etc. When, I would say, the level of sophistication with the client is less, you see that there's more dependability on the data used by these providers. I would say, so far, I've heard from clients, at least in the Netherlands, that they're most happy with the data provided by MSCI. I think it's interesting with all these providers, just like sell-side research, they all have different points of view and that we take their points of view into our thinking. But this is really where active managers, I believe, add value, which is they're forward-looking, not backward-looking. Another area that active managers add value is how they engage with companies. You mentioned it in the proxy voting, Kay, but can you expand more on how our corporate governance specialists work with our analysts in engagement? I think it's important for us to integrate these conversations into our investment dialogue. We shouldn't think about ESG as an afterthought. We should include it. So in addition to our ESG specialists engaging with research analysts as they think about proxy voting, additionally, just this week, we had ESG specialists asking a research analyst whether we should flag a company as a negative outlier based on news flow that we saw. So I think it's very important to have continuing dialogue between the ESG specialists and portfolio managers and research analysts to make these ESG matters an important part of our investment conversations. Over the last two decades, from both an investment and client perspective, we have seen ESG evolve. Kay, how would you say ESG has evolved from your perspective? Sure. If I think about it, I've been with J.P. Morgan Asset Management since 1998. And if I think about my experience investing, I think we've focused historically more on the governance aspect and on voting and proxy side. If I think about, we've had for decades ESG specialists who focus, but historically their focus has really been on governance and on proxy voting. So I think it's only in the last couple of years partly due to client demand and partly due to companies changing, that we have been more focused on the environmental and social. Those are difficult topics, really, because for many clients, for many investors, environmental and social matters mean different things to different people. So those are more difficult. I think it's easy to think about governance. We can all agree that 
independent boards are good, compensation that is fair and transparent is good, but the E and S matters are more difficult. I know that we have focused on governance as an important part of our investment process for the last several decades. When it comes to E and S, it seems more complicated. And the trickiest one and the most diverse in terms of what it means to cash flows, I think would be S. I agree. When we think about E, we're looking specifically at the energy companies, the utility companies. We're thinking about stranded cost of assets. And you're right, S is a little bit, to use a technical term, squishier, because it means different things to different people. Can you give me an example of a sector where S has a potentially large impact? Sure. I guess I would think about retail. If you think about one of the most controversial topics in S, in retail in particular, is the labor laws that are in place in different countries. And the way that we approach that is to think about how sustainable a company's margins are, given what their labor practices are. Linzo, from a client perspective, how has ESG evolved over the last decades? I would say it's really the last couple of years where we've seen a big acceleration within this particular topic as I would say the 15 years beforehand, I think it was mostly a discussion which was for a few boutiques, it was mostly retail focused. And as you're all very well aware, ESG wasn't really the name. It was more called SRI funds. And we had some SRI funds in Europe, but it wasn't really that there was institutional money attached to it. Over the last few years, as mentioned earlier, with the Climate Change Conference, also, yeah, with global warming higher on the agenda, also corporate governance, it really has changed a lot. And we really see most of the large institutions in Europe making plans and also taking it into account into their planning for the foreseeable future. And Linzo, by SRI, you mean socially responsible investing? That's correct, yes. And is that typically an exclusionary approach? Or how do your clients think about that? Exactly, okay. What it is, is exclusion of a number of stocks or bonds in the portfolio. And for instance, we all know the exclusion list from cluster ammunition and certain other sectors which are deemed to be appropriate. But next to the exclusion, there's nothing next to it which makes it an ES and G fund. There's no engagement, there's no reporting, etc. It's just simply taking out the stocks which we think are not appropriate to hold. Okay, I read an interesting article recently that one of the most important factors that can have a positive impact is board diversity. Can you share with us if you have any insights when you look and analyze a company about how you think about the board? Well, the board is really more, our ES&G specialists more focus on the board. Our research analysts collaborate with the ES&G specialists, but I think the constituents of the board are more the focus of our ES&G specialists, less the focus of the research teams. So I would defer that question to them. But I do know that they look very carefully at the composition of the board, at the independence of the board, and the experience of the board members. Jamie, in your role as Global Head of Strategic Product Management and ESG Lead for the firm, where do you see us, but also the broader industry, regarding ESG over the next three to five years, and also from a product perspective as well? You know, ESG has come a long way in terms of the data provided. And within the equity space, I think we've seen more and more offerings from best in class to ESG integration to thematic investments. And I think we'll see more continue to emerge. 
I strongly believe that ESG integration will be a minimum requirement for managing assets. It won't be a nice to have, it will be a need to have, and the bar will be raised in terms of showing clients in a transparent way how one manages assets from the research to the portfolio construction to the risk management reporting. Two of the areas where I believe we'll see more progress, the first is fixed income. In the fixed income space, the measurement, the data, the definitions are evolving. And the second space where I believe we'll continue to see improvements are the analytics and reporting. Let me tell you what I mean by that. When we have a conversation with a client, we speak the same language. We talk about performance. We talk about calendar year returns. We talk about rolling returns. And we talk about risks, so tracking our, our sharp ratio. And all of our clients around the world understand what we're referring to. When we talk about ESG measurement, it's a bit unclear. There are no standards. When we talk about, does a portfolio have a better e-score? What should that be measured against? Should it be measured against a broad benchmark? Should it be measured against a sustainable benchmark? There will and should be standardization of the analytics within portfolios so that when we have a client meeting in five years from now, our clients understand the measurement of a portfolio across ES and G and the portfolio and what that means in terms of their ownership. As millennials and women make up a greater portion of asset owners, certainly I believe that we'll see more strategies geared towards their beliefs and their values. That could be a portfolio that's tilted towards broad diversity, or it could be a portfolio that's tilted towards clean energy. But there will be more products out there, and they will have more assets. Linzo, when we think about product development, one of the areas we feel strongly about is how we measure ourselves against standard benchmarks. Do your clients share the same views, and how are they measuring or benchmarking their managers performance on ESG strategies? Yes, of course. So we've seen benchmark providers such as MSCI and others creating bespoke benchmarks for ESNG. The question is whether that's really going to be the mainstream solution for our clients. We think that by integrating these typical factors into portfolio management and research as well, this will lead to better outcomes versus the benchmark anyway. So although some clients might opt for by changing the benchmark and going for a ESG or a green solution. We think that by just incorporating into the process, we don't need to actually to alter the benchmark, so to speak. And so far, we haven't seen a lot of clients within the institutional world where benchmarks need to be altered. It's actually mostly the standard benchmark still. Although I think this is a topic that we need to consider further, because if you think about the origins of this industry and the socially responsible investing that Linso referenced earlier, those actually typically did have a different benchmark and managers were measured against the universe of companies in which they're investing. So I think we need to think very carefully about the appropriate benchmark if we're excluding companies or how we're evaluating companies for this. I agree with you, Kay, that it's an area we need to focus on. However, I also agree with Linzo that broad-based benchmarks play a role in measuring a portfolio. As a fiduciary, it is our goal to outperform in the long run. Of course, there are specific client constraints, but more and more we're hearing from clients that it's ESG incorporation or integration, which is important to them. We define ESG integration as thinking about these factors throughout the entire investment process and showing our clients how we're thinking about these factors. 
how we do research, how we manage our portfolios, and how our investment directors have conversations and challenge our portfolio managers on their holdings to ensure that they understand all the risks inherent in holding the security. While I think that exclusionary portfolios certainly should have different benchmarks, this generation of ESG investing should be about being able to beat broad benchmarks. ESG integration is about the systematic, repeatable, transparent process from research to portfolio construction to risk management and reporting. While I believe that for an exclusionary portfolio, it's appropriate to have a benchmark X, a restriction, for an ESG integrated portfolio, it should be all about beating a broad benchmark. Makes sense. Linzo, is ESG just a fad or is it here to stay? Definitely here to stay. I would say the 2015 United Nations Climate Change Conference in Paris and the outcome of that has led to many asset owners considering a more prudent approach regarding climate change when building portfolios. Also, we've seen the topic of corporate governance taking into a higher level. For instance, compensation and board structures receive more scrutiny than before. I would say our client base now demands an integrated approach for incorporating ESG factors into the asset manager portfolio management process. And Kay, how about you? Is ESG a fad or is it here to stay? I think if it's tacked on as an afterthought, it will become a fad. But if it's fully integrated into the conversation and part of the fabric of the investment dialogue, then it's absolutely here to stay. And it's an important part of that conversation. I agree with you both. ESG is here to stay. I believe in 10 years from now, when we're having this discussion on ESG, there won't be a discussion. Is there a trade-off between incorporating ESG and giving up any level of return? I think that we'll have enough data at that point to look back and say that ESG incorporation is a good form of risk management and it enhances your portfolio's return. At the end of the day, you can have your alpha in ESG too. I would give one piece of closing advice. As you think about your own journey to ESG integration, don't be afraid to clarify what it means to you. The most productive conversations we have with clients is where we partner together to discuss where we can invest where our clients find value. Kay Linzo, thank you for joining us on Insights. Jamie, thanks for having us. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes or on our website, recorded on May 15, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, Users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, 
and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the marketing name for the asset management businesses of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and their affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EEA jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 19760-1586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 20112035E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514-3832-080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.